Hey everyone, I know it's been a little while since I've had a podcast out. Last month I was busy working on and finishing a book that I just released called 40 Moments from Christ's Final Days, which you can check out down in the show notes. And then I got sick, and I honestly did not feel like editing out a bunch of coughing or sounding like a woman named Madge who had been smoking for 70 years. But I'm back, and I have a recording from a teaching I just did at a local church called Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa, at their program called Gospel-Centered Recovery. Uh, Some of you may remember, GCR is a addictions program for people who want to see victory over their controlling sins through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I will warn you in advance, this one is a bit of a beefy one, but I think it's a good one. Um, I would encourage you to have your Bible out, especially in the last half, but enjoy. All right, well, I'm pretty sure I say this every night, and I mean it every time. It is such a joy to be a GCR. I love what this ministry stands for. I love, um, especially that group time after, where everyone could just be honest and vulnerable. Um, so, and uh, seeing God work to uh, get me to actually have to fill in for the guy who was supposed to speak tonight, so that I actually get to actually teach through part of the Bible. You know, it's not just a, a chapter here and a chapter there. So. Um, Yeah, God's been just very gracious and sovereign over um, making sure that uh, I'm able to teach here tonight and then next week. Uh, Now, for those of you who have um, never been stuck with me before, I will briefly just explain kind of my teaching style so you know what you're in for. So I really like to look at the context of what we're looking at on any given night. I like to understand the the mentality and the mindset of the author. I like to understand the um, the culture and the understandings and the assumptions of the audience that he's writing to, so that then we can understand if this is what the author wanted them to understand about who God is, who Jesus is, who they are, then we can better understand the reality of who God is, not by making assumptions, not by just making guesswork in the text, but just understanding what was said so that we can better understand what that means to us today. So we are going to dig in through basically all of Hebrews 9. Um, we're going to get uh, spend a lot of time just understanding what is actually being said here, and then we'll have uh, some good application at the end of it. Now, before we jump into Hebrews 9, I want to start with the last uh, verse of Hebrews chapter 8, because that really just kind of serves as a, a launching point to get us to what the author is going to be talking about. So at the end of the last chapter, he said, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, what the author has just done in talking to this group is basically terrified them. He's writing to a group of Jews who had grown up and lived decades under the Old Covenant. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Old Covenant was basically everything you think of about the Old Testament. The animal sacrifices, all the laws, eat this, don't eat that, do this on this day, don't do that on the other day. That's what they understood about life, so much so that it was a part of their heritage, right? That's what every good Jew did. Um, They not only that was a part of their heritage, it's what they trusted in. This was salvation to them. This is what they had to do. This was what their identity was. Everything they knew about life, everything they understood about the world was found in this old covenant. And now the author just drops this bomb of, hey, 
that's going away. And in is coming this new covenant through Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross, taking your place, taking your sins upon himself so that you can be free from sin simply by trusting in him, not following all these old laws, not worrying about all this other stuff to earn or keep your salvation. It's just Jesus. And like I said, that had to be hard for for them. And so for us to just begin to get into their mindset, think about if someone came up to you and said, hey, did you know that your body doesn't actually need water or food or sleep? Now think about how perspective changing that would have to be. All your, you know, a majority of your money, a lot of your time, how you structure your day is centered around eating, drinking, and maybe sleeping if you have time, right? Now, if someone was to tell you, hey, that thing that you've always understood about the core of your life, that thing that you need most or else you'll die, is completely wrong. You don't need that anymore. That is the reality shift that these Jews were undertaking as they were trying to understand Jesus Christ next to this old covenant that they were familiar with. And so that's how I want us to understand what they were thinking as he then launches into chapter 9 here. And he starts off by saying, now, even the first covenant, so this old covenant they were familiar with, even that had requirements of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So now we have to stop here. I could go on and we could read uh, verses 2 through 10. And in that, he basically spends 30 seconds reminding them about some stuff about this old covenant they were familiar with. But that 30 seconds for them is going to be almost complete nonsense to us. It would be like if you were someone who was familiar with Marvel Comics. You, you knew you know, Captain America, you knew the Hulk, you know, the big green guy. Maybe you've seen one or two of the Marvel movies. And you're like, yeah, I get Marvel. I, I know superhero stuff. But then if you were to go to like a comic book convention where you've got guys who have spent decades reading nothing but comics, they've got hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in all this stuff. And if you were to go and sit in on a conversation between two of these people, you might hear the word Captain America. You may hear some familiar things, but you're going to have no idea what's happening, right? Because there is a context to what they're talking about that's going to be completely lost on someone that isn't familiar with anything more than just the high base level stuff. So what the author then goes on to say is basically that, is he says a lot of stuff that is going to trigger a lot of understanding and familiarity from people who literally spent decades of their life focused and dedicated to this. But for us, we might hear something about an altar, a tabernacle, and things like that, but we're not going to have good context for how these people understood it. So instead of just reading that in the 30-second clip that they give, I want to instead just walk you through what they understood about the tabernacle, get a more zoomed in and contextual view of what they understood about daily living and what they were placing their hope in. So the tabernacle is something that was instituted about 1,300 years before Jesus. God gave the uh, commands to Moses, giving him very specific instructions on a structure to build for Israel. Uh, This structure was surrounded by a a cloth and wood uh, fence, and around it, it was, a, it was a classable thing, so when Israel was traveling, they could take it with them. But when they set it up, all of Israel was to camp around it. And this is where God said that he would dwell in the midst of Israel. He would be present in their midst, but he wasn't going to be off to the side. He wasn't going to be removed from them. He was going to be central to everything about their lives when they were camped out. Now, within this tabernacle, there was a specific setup that everyone was familiar with. So like I said, it was surrounded by a wall, 
so that no one could go into it because only the priests could actually go into this area when it was set up. So there was a wall set up around it and there was only a single entrance on the east side that the priests alone were allowed to go into. Now, when they went in there, the first thing that they would see would be this bronze altar covered in blood and ash because this is where they would make those sacrifices that a lot of you are probably familiar with. Now, the purpose of these sacrifices was if the priests or if just anyone in Israel had knowingly committed a sin or had become unclean. So you could become unclean by you know, eating the wrong food, touching a dead animal that hadn't been killed properly or an animal that was unclean, all kinds of ways to become unclean in Israel. But if they had knowingly sinned, they would bring a sacrifice to the priest. Now, ideally, this was an animal because the, the bloodshed was a necessary thing, as we'll talk about later. Uh, but if you were just dirt poor, you could bring some wheat for the sacrifice. And so they would give this to the priest as a, a payment to cover over the sin or the uncleanliness that they had committed. The priest would then take it in, do the sacrifice. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. But that's where uh, the first thing that they would see in the tabernacle. If they were to go on, they would see a big structure in front of them that was a big rectangular tent that was sectioned off into two places. Again, this only had a single entrance, and before the priest could go in there, they had to stop at a thing called a bronze laver, which is basically just a big basin of water, and they would have to ritually clean themselves. The purpose being that they could not enter into this structure unclean, or God would kill them. Because God took cleanliness and purity that seriously that he would kill the people whose only job was basically to serve him and represent Israel to God. So they would get clean, they would go in, and within this first area was called the holy place. Now, the priests would go in here, they would be working between the holy place and the altar day in, day out, every single day throughout the year. They'd be making sacrifices and they'd be entering into this holy place. Now, in the holy place, there was just three things. The first thing was a bronze... Um, uh, lamp stand. It had seven lights on it, and it was an oil lamp. Uh, God had commanded that the priest could never let this light go out. So day in, day out, they had to make absolutely sure that this light was not going to go out, that all seven of those flames kept burning, because this was a picture of God being the light of Israel, the truth, the light in the darkness for them, the one who guided them. Uh, to the north, there was the table of showbread or the table of the presence, or the bread of the presence. Now, that was something where every Friday the priest would have to bake these 12 loaves of bread to very, very specific specifications. They had to follow the recipe exactly. There was no you know, adding fun ingredients or whatever. They had to do it precisely. And then on the Sabbath, they would take the old bread that was there, get rid of it, and they would replace it with uh, these 12 loaves of bread, a pile of six here, a pile of six there, and they would eat from that bread very ritualistically, all throughout the week. And this was the reminder to them that God was their sustenance, and he was the one who gave them life, just like bread does, right? Uh, and then at the back of this uh, holy place was a, an altar of incense. Uh, throughout the Bible, whenever uh, the Bible talks about incense or burning incense, it's always a picture of prayer, because you light incense and a sweet-smelling aroma lifts up, right? And that's a picture of our prayers going up to God. And so morning and evening, the priest would have to uh, like this incense as a prayer to God. Now, this was their life day in, day out, 364 days out of the year. Now, 365th day of the year, not really, but on the Day of Atonement, 
they were allowed to go into this one place that they would never be allowed to go into, and that was the Holy of Holies. Uh, you can see there it's sectioned off by a red curtain. This was about, uh, as we understand, about a three-foot thick, uh, just layers of curtains uh, that nobody could go into any other time of the year or they would die immediately. There was no messing around because this is where God made his, his presence manifested in Israel. Because back in here is what is called the Ark of the Covenant. So any Indiana Jones fans in here, they actually got it pretty accurate in the movie. Um, the Ark of the Covenant is what Israel would carry around with them, and that is where God would make his, his uh, uh, manifested presence seen. Now, obviously, God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere always. But this is where he chose to visibly make himself known and seen as he dwelled in the midst of his people Israel. Now, within the Ark of the Covenant, you had a pot of manna, which is what God gave Israel to feed them in the wilderness, uh, Aaron's staff that had miraculously uh, sprouted and budded, and then the stone tablets that God had carved the Ten Commandments in. Now, seated on top of this Ark was a golden lid with, as you see, two gold cherubims uh, with their wings pointed to one another, and in the midst of that was God's Shekinah glory, so the, the physical or the visible manifestation of God's presence. As I said... 364 days out of the year, no one got to go back in here lest they die. But that one special day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, if you've heard that, the high priest and the high priest alone could go back in here. Now, when he did that, typically he would have the... Uh, when he would dress for service, he would have a very beautiful outfit on. It'd be this you know, beautiful blue. He would have this breastplate with these precious stones on it. Uh, the hem of his robe would have these bells on it so that whenever he was uh, you know, doing the, the sacrifices and, and working in the holy place, uh, you know, remember, no one could see him. So when you got bells on your robe and you're walking, you hear ding, 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 ding. And so people in Israel could hear that the high priest was doing his job representing them to God and ensuring that their sins were covered through the, the animal sacrifices that they were giving. So those bells were kind of like a, a sign of hope for them. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to go into this Holy of Holies before the presence of God to make a special sacrifice. And when he did that, he wasn't you know, dressed all fancy. He wasn't allowed to make any noise. It was this very solemn, somber moment where he was approaching God. And the, um, the reason that he would do this is that, as I said, throughout the year, you know, they're making sacrifices for known sins, right? I know that I lied. I know that I stole. I know that I touched something, you know, dead or unclean. But there were sins that they were committing they had no idea of. There were people who may have gone hundreds of days being ritually unclean because they accidentally touched something without ever knowing it. They may have committed a sin without ever realizing it. Uh, you know, for example, Jesus, he says that, you know, uh, God's word says, you shall not murder. But if you, if you get angry, you commit murder in your heart. If you lust after a woman, you commit adultery in your heart. Now, these were human beings. Do we think that they got angry? Do we think that they lusted? Yes. So they had sins present in their lives they had no idea of. And so on this day of atonement, this was the high priest's chance to, to make a sacrifice to God to cover over those sins that they had no idea of. So the high priest would take a bull and two goats. He would sacrifice the bull and take the blood. And this was meant to act as atonement for him and his household. So he would take the blood, sprinkle it on the mercy seat where God's presence was, and he would sprinkle it in front of the mercy seat. Um, he would then take the goats and he would basically roll some dice. 
one, the goat who won, I think it's winning, would um, get sacrificed and offered to God as, as, a, as a sacrifice. The goat who lost or won, depending on your perspective, would have uh, the priest would lay his hands on him and then send that goat out into the wilderness. And this was a picture of the sins of the people being carried out in the wilderness where it would die away from the people of God. Now, and then he would take the blood of this other goat and go and sprinkle it. Now, as he was doing this, remember, he could not approach God and see him and live, right? So what he would have to do is he would have to carry around basically a pot of coal and very intense incense that would create a lot of smoke so that when he entered this Holy of Holies and was before the presence of God, his vision would be obscured so that he would be aware of where things were, but he would not be capable of, of gazing upon the Lord, lest he die. Um, as a fun fact, I think I give a fun fact almost every time. Um, a lot of times when, when, if you've been in church long enough, people tell this story and they talk about, you know, the priest had a rope with bells tied on it so that if he died while in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, they could, you know, the other priest could reel him back out because they couldn't enter. Um, it's not actually in the Bible. It's one of those fun Christian myths that gets told over and over again, but it's not, uh, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. So there's your fun fact for the day. But um, the point, though, is that this is what the high priest did every day of every year, right? He would 364 days out of the year do the daily sacrifices, do the tending of the holy place. And then on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would have this very serious and important time where he would make the sacrifice for the people. And the people lived for this. This is what all their lives were centered around. This was part of that old covenant that they put so much trust in. Now, what I've given you is just a a basic understanding of this Old Covenant. I mean, we're talking literally, it would take hours to get into everything that was contained in this. But just from that, what we can understand about the First Covenant is that it was location-based. It could only happen in uh, the tabernacle. It was very complicated. Again, just that simple bit that I gave you, there's so much to it. And you've got to do it exactly right or you die. Um, it was very ritualistic and repetitive. Uh, you know, you had to do the same thing day in, day out over and over again. You know, you had to keep making sacrifices. You had to keep, you know, the, the lamp lit and all that. And at the end of the day, no matter how much they did, no matter how good the sacrifices were, it was imperfect. You know, I said throughout that that they would make these sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. Because that's a misunderstanding I think we often have about what happened in the Old Testament. The animal sacrifices never forgave sin. It covered sin, not covering like, you know, covering, you know, the bill at a restaurant, but covering like a blanket, covering like a bandage on a wound. It hid it. It allowed for God to basically deal with his people without the, the reality of their, their injustice and their sin being ever present before his eyes. So he allowed them a way to interact with him without their sins being obvious. But their sins had not been paid for. They were still guilty of those sins. So even when they died, they couldn't go to heaven because their sins were still not paid for. They had not been judged justly by God. So that was the Jews' heritage. That is what these people were trusting in. That is what they felt their salvation was tied up in. That is what they thought their identity was. That is what they thought they needed. They had Jesus. They liked Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is Savior. But they needed Jesus and this other stuff. And that's what this author is getting at, is no, it's not Jesus plus works, not Jesus plus rituals, Jesus plus what you find your identity in. It's Jesus plus nothing. And that's what he's going to get into for the rest of this chapter. And so 
what I want to do, I want to try something different, is, you know, we spent a lot of time understanding the context, and I hope that by understanding that, the rest of this is going to be really simple and straightforward. So what I've done is I've gone through, and as we read these verses, I've just underlined stuff that calls back to that old covenant stuff, so that you can see how he's comparing who Jesus is with what they thought they needed and understood. Um, and then I will have a bold there that is kind of the main point that I think the author wants his audience to understand and that I want us to look at as well as we uh, talk about all of this at the end of the chapter. So having gone through, for them, 30 seconds of understanding the Old Covenant, but for us, a few minutes more, uh, he then goes into Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 and says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. So you can see here, he's talking about Jesus is the better high priest, not just a more improved version, but the perfect high priest that you never had. And he entered like the priest would enter into the tabernacle, but Jesus didn't go somewhere that they expected or that they were familiar with. He went into something that is not built by human hands, not something that is easily torn down, not something that has to be maintained like the priest had to do. And he entered it not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, not day in, day out, not once a year. He entered this once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Remember, what, what blood bought them under the old covenant was a covering, a pause, right? A temporary reprieve for sins that still had to be paid for by someone, either them or the perfect lamb sacrifice who was coming, who we know is Jesus Christ. And so he points out that Jesus didn't just buy them a better covering, a better pause. He bought them eternal redemption, freedom. He bought them from the penalty of their sins. Then as he goes on in verses 13 and 14, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled can sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more can he cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what the author does here is something really neat that you'll find over and over again in the Bible. And he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, if this smaller thing is true, how much more true will this bigger thing be? So he says that if the imperfect and almost worthless blood of goats and bulls could purify people from their physical defilement, from you know, that, that ritual uncleanliness, how much more can the perfect blood of Jesus Christ not just make you better ritualistically, but how much more can he cleanse your conscience from dead works? Cleansing the conscience is not just this, oh, I feel so much better now, I just, a, a weight's been lifted. No, cleansing the conscience means to remove guilt, to remove the stain of sin in a person's life. We talked about how these people, they were covered but still guilty. Jesus Christ did away with that. For those that put their trust in him, for these people that this author is talking to, he's saying, Jesus Christ didn't just die to make you, you know, better ritualistically. He is the perfect sacrifice that doesn't cover. He removes, he, he purges you from the guilt of your sin for every wrongdoing that you've ever done, known or unknown. Jesus Christ paid for it so that you are no longer guilty of it. Um, and then the dead works uh, we need to look at just briefly. So, you know, dead works for them was basically... 
what it is for us. It's anything done apart from God, apart from serving the will of God. So for them, their dead works were trying to stick to this old covenant, right? Doing enough good things, doing the right stuff, following all the laws perfectly to prove themselves to God, right? And finding their identity in who they were as Jews, not in who they were as the people of Christ. That was their dead works that Christ cleansed them from so that they could serve the living God, not dead works. Now in verse 15, he goes on, and for this reason, because Jesus has cleansed you from the guilt of your sin, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So just as the high priest was the representative between the people and God, Jesus Christ is now the better and more perfect representative for his people to the heavenly father. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Jesus Christ didn't just pay it for people after him. He paid the, the penalty for those who died in faith before Jesus came, right? Those people who lived under this old covenant law, he paid the penalty for them as well. Um, now, for sake of time, I will skip this. This is basically, for those who want to study it later, um, a, a really neat metaphor where he compares how death brings in a, an inheritance. Um, and he talks about how you know, the death and blood you know, pl- plays into that. Uh, but then he ends it with a very important lesson that we need to understand. And that is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, this isn't just a callback to what the high priest did day in and day out. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because remember what happened. They sinned. They knew they were naked, and what did God do? He covered them, not with twigs and fig leaves. He covered them with animal skins. Where did God get the animal skin? He didn't just you know, conjure it out of nothing. He slaughtered an animal, shed its blood to cover Adam and Eve because of their sin. Moses, before the, this whole covenant was set up, when, when Israel and Moses said, yes, we will be the people of God, Moses made the first animal sacrifice, filled bowls of, with blood, and basically just sloshed it on the people as they committed themselves to God because they needed that blood covering for their sins that they had committed. Um, and then, you know, the sacrifices that we talked about, and then finally, the ultimate sacrifice, the, the final perfect shedding of blood was found in Jesus Christ. He didn't just live a good life so that we can model him. He died. He shed his blood to cover sins, to pay for them completely 100% because we never could. Now, verse 23, he continues, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Again, something I could spend an hour getting into, but essentially everything that we talked about in that temple, right, in, in, the, in the tabernacle, was always a picture of Jesus Christ. 1,300 years before Jesus Christ was born, God had set up very specific parameters about that tabernacle, about the things in the tabernacle, because they were always going to be pointing them towards the better thing. They were shadows. Jesus was the one casting the shadow. They were copies. Jesus was the real substance. And this is the core of what he's getting at with these people is you think all your your satisfaction, your identity, your happiness, your salvation is found in this stuff? This stuff was always meant to point you to Jesus. This stuff was never meant to be alongside Jesus or replace him. It is Jesus alone that would save them. And it's Jesus alone that saves us. Now, uh, 24 to 25 is where he wraps it up. Now, if we had just read this without context, what he says here would be weird, maybe even hard to understand because it, it, it seems very random. He goes from all this Old Testament stuff to now he talks about um, 
Oh, no, we're not there yet. Sorry. It, it still makes sense. Excuse me. So, for Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, as we talked about with the shadows, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Remember, the high priest represented the people to God how often? Once a year. Jesus Christ, moment by moment, is representing us to God. He is consistently saying their sins are covered. Their debt is paid. They are not guilty. Do not treat them as the criminals that they are because those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, that's been wiped clean. Jesus took that punishment that we don't have to take. And then he goes on, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Again, Jesus died once. It was a complete and total perfect sacrifice. Everything that needed to be dealt with on the cross was dealt with on the cross. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, this is, is really cool. So you remember I told you that there was two goats on the Day of Atonement, right? One was, was sacrificed to God. The other was sent away. What did that goat do? What did it represent? Carrying the sins of the people away, right? The sins were put on the goat and then removed from the people. And what does he say here? That Jesus Christ put away sin by sacrifice of himself. Again, another picture that it was always pointing Israel to Jesus. Now, now it doesn't make as much sense without the context. He says, and inasmuch as, as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, again, that goat bearing the sins, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now, again, I said, this would be a really weird and random statement to make in the midst of all of this, because you know, people got to die once, and Christ is coming back to save people, but not saving them from sin. What is going on here? Well, having established everything he did about how Christ is the perfect sacrifice, what the author now does is he tells us about two eternal destinies that people now have. Now, without Christ, right, whether people who die without trusting him for salvation or those in the old covenant who died without being in faith in God, they had one thing guaranteed to them. They would die and they would go to hell. Now, hell was not their eternal punishment. Hell was essentially a horrible waiting room. While they waited for sentencing and judgment to appear before the judge, they had to go somewhere because their souls couldn't go up to heaven. So they go to hell. Then the next step is sometime in the future, so even future from now, everyone who needs to stand before the judge is going to be bodily, physically resurrected, and they will stand before Christ. Now, I said in the past, Jesus is not a tax accountant. He's a judge. When he is judging people, he's not going to sit there and say, you know, oh, do your good outweigh your bad? And, you know, were you a good enough person in life? No, he's a judge. Judges don't care how good you are. They care about the laws that you've broken. Jesus will look at every single person who has not been judged and had their sins punished and say, have you lied? Have you lusted? Have you given into your addictions? Have you gotten angry? Have you gotten violent? Have you done any number of things that break the law of God? Have you disobeyed your parents? At the very least, we all know we're guilty of that, right? And if you have kids, you know. <laughs> but everyone will stand guilty before the judge. And he's not just some nice guy who's going to let people off. He's good. He's perfect. And therefore, he has to punish sin. 
And if it was not punished on Jesus Christ, their punishment is eternity in the lake of fire. Their body and soul will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity to, de- to, to burn with Satan and the Antichrist and, and just every ounce of sin in, in the universe is going to be purged in the lake of fire. And so what he's saying is that is the eternal destiny for people normally. Without Jesus Christ, that's all that anyone can hope for because sin has to be punished. But men are appointed to die once, Jesus died once. And so because Jesus died in taking the punishment for our sins, those who trust him for salvation, those who realize they can do nothing to save themselves, but trust in Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice alone to save them, they have another destiny. We will die just like everyone else will. But instead of hell, we go to heaven. Now, for a lot of us, we think, okay, it stops there. You know, we sit around, we play harps on clouds. No, there is so much more to eternity than that. Because what he talks about here, where Jesus will appear a second time for salvation, but not to save for sin, here's what's going to happen. In the future, you can read in the book of Revelation that uh, in the future, Christ is going to take his people and remove us from earth. If you've heard about the rapture, that's what that is. He takes his, his faithful living and takes them to heaven, gives them new, glorified, perfect, sinless bodies. Then, in the future, the only thing that will be left on earth is Israel and, and uh, Gentile nations that are enemies of God. Some in Israel will finally turn to Christ. They will trust him for salvation, but the rest of the world won't. The rest of the world is going to turn against Israel. And at some point in the future, seven years after we are removed from earth, the entire world is going to come crashing down on Israel, trying to wipe them off the face of the map. And Jesus Christ will appear a second time for salvation, not to save from sin, but to literally save his people from destruction. He will wipe out all his living enemies on earth and set up a 1,000-year kingdom where he will physically reign on the earth, and we will be there with him. Those of us who today trust in Christ for salvation and we die, that's not the end. Heaven's not the end for us. We come back with Jesus Christ, and we will get an eternal life not hanging around in heaven singing songs, but literally just living, living on the perfect earth that Jesus Christ will remake one day in sinless eternity with perfection with God forever. And we only get that through Jesus Christ. That is the eternity that we can be promised through him. And that was a lot. Chapter nine is not a simple chapter. So I, you know, we, we understand the context. We understand what the author wanted his audience to understand. So what does that mean for us today? Because we're not Jews struggling with the old covenant law, right? We aren't finding our identity in, in ser- bringing sacrifices to a high priest and in keeping all these ceremonial laws and worrying about uncleanliness. So what do we do about it? The first thing we do is understand that context matters. If we had not understood this like Israel would have or like these Jews would have, this would have been a complete waste of time. Because without understanding what the old covenant was, we cannot possibly understand what Jesus did in his perfect sacrifice. Next, we realize that we don't gain salvation or worship Jesus on our terms. You know, for them, it was keeping those old ways, you know, following what their heritage was. For us, how do we want to think about salvation? How do we think about uh, worshiping Jesus? You know, for some, it's, oh, well, you know, Jesus exists to make me, you know, healthy and wealthy in this life, like the prosperity gospel says. That's not in the Bible. Uh, maybe it's the, you know, the, the word of faith theology where you know, we need all these miraculous signs. We need to have gold dust come down from the ceiling fans during worship and all that. And we just need to have these experiences to know that we're saved. That's not what Jesus calls us to. 
Uh, you know, maybe you think of Jesus as an emer- you know, one of those breaking case of emergency things, right? I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do things my way. But when it gets really bad, I'll call out to Jesus. Or maybe you think of Jesus as a get-out-of-hell-free card. You know, I'm saved, I prayed my prayer, now I can go do what I want to do, and the bill has just been paid. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus doesn't help us to be good like a life coach. Jesus isn't sitting there trying to ruin our fun and just make us just sit around, just cross our arms and pout and sing really boring songs all day. Jesus is God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He saved us from our bondage to sin. He saved us from slavery to sin. Not so we can just live the life that we want, but so that we can live the life that God calls us to. So that we can not serve those dead works, but serve a living God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Next, we learned that Christ's sacrifice was a one-time, complete event that guarantees our salvation. Jesus paid it all. That is the only thing that the author of Hebrews 9 basically said, right? Jesus did it all, and he did it one time. It's not a regular sacrifice. It wasn't an incomplete, imperfect sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was whole and complete. Therefore, if Jesus did everything, what can you do to earn your salvation? Nothing. If Jesus did it all, what can you do to lose your salvation? Nothing. And I know a lot of people here need to hear that sometimes, right? I mean, this is GCR. People are here because they know how weak they are and how much sin can be appealing to them. You need to know that Christ hasn't called you to walk in defeat in fear of losing your salvation. He's called you to holy living, but not so that you can keep your salvation, but so that you can enjoy your salvation. Now, we need to remember that we have to set aside dead works for salvation and holy living. You know, for them, again, those dead works were following the law. What are dead works for us? Uh, you know, what brings you here tonight? You know, what is it that you're placing your trust in? What are you finding your identity in? Uh, you know, I was talking to David Tashner earlier, and he and I can relate because one of the dead works that we served, one of the things that we felt would bring us ultimate happiness and satisfaction was getting angry. When things would not go our way, when we were not happy, when someone had done something that, how dare they, that idiot, how dare they do that, we would just explode, right? The world would feel our wrath either through our words or through our actions, those, that was a dead work we served because we said my satisfaction, who I am, is found in either hurting people or me getting my way. And if I don't get my way, then you better watch out. Maybe for some of you, it's alcohol. You know, you are finding your comfort, your salvation, your freedom in the feelings that alcohol or drugs give you. That's not what Christ calls you to. That is a dead work that stops you from serving a living God. You know, maybe it's, it's relationships. Maybe it's just trying to be a really, really good person and clean up your act by yourself so that you can earn salvation, so that you can keep your salvation, whatever it is. These are dead works that Jesus died to save us from. He didn't die so that we can keep serving sin. He died to set us free from sin to serve God, to walk in freedom from anger, from addictions, from from trying to be a good enough person on your own efforts. Jesus died to set all of us free from all of that. But the last thing that we need to understand from this is that this life is our only opportunity to repent and ask Jesus to save us. You don't get another opportunity in hell. You don't get another opportunity in uh, purgatory. You don't get another opportunity when you're resurrected and you realize it's all real and suddenly you're ready to repent. It is appointed for man once to die and judgment comes after that. If you die without Jesus Christ having taken judgment for you, I guarantee you, I promise you, I'm not someone who makes promises lightly. I promise you there's only one thing waiting for you and that is resurrection and judgment from Jesus Christ. You have no hope without him of securing your freedom from that.
So, if you are here and you don't know with confidence where your eternity is, you don't know if you have truly trusted in that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, don't mess around with this. Don't assume, I'll do it when I've got my act cleaned up. I'll do it when I'm done living my life. I'll do it tomorrow. You are guaranteed absolutely nothing. You have zero power over your own life. You have zero power, especially over the world around you. How much do you trust the structural integrity of this building? I didn't check it. I guarantee none of you checked it. We have no idea if in five seconds that thing's coming crashing down and killing all of us. You have zero guarantees to see another moment in this life. The most important thing you can possibly do is realize that your sins have made you an enemy of a holy God, that you deserve nothing but wrath and judgment, but that Jesus Christ died to pay for that penalty for you so that at the end of this life, your judgment is done. You can go to heaven, but then after heaven, you can have an eternity, an eternal life with Jesus Christ, free from sin, free from suffering, free from pain. That is what Jesus Christ offers us, but it's not because of our good works. It's not when we do stuff plus Jesus. Jesus Christ alone is your hope for salvation. Do not end this night not sure of that. And if you are sure of it, then live like it's true. Don't keep going back to those addictions. Don't keep going back to those dead works, those things that you place your identity in, your hope for salvation or comfort or rest or reprieve in. Stop turning to sin, thinking that it's going to save you from some unpleasantness in your life. It's not. Jesus Christ alone is your hope. Jesus Christ alone is your freedom from your obligation to sin, and Jesus Christ alone is how you can live the life that God has called you to. Living for your holy God, not for yourself, not for sin. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash Onward in the Faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.